we've been talking about revivals on Sunday morning or revival on Sunday morning. And typically what you find when you study revivals is revivals don't occur because of some sort of new revelation. Uh, when you look at the Bible and the revivals of church history, you, you don't find that they learned anything new, but rather God called His people back to something they already knew but had been rejecting or neglecting. So think about like the revival under Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah didn't tell them anything new. What he basically said was, there's only one God, and it's not Baal, it is Yahweh. And then God sent down fire and revival sprung out of that. Even the revivals in the book of Acts typically didn't come because they they were learning new things. It came because the Holy Spirit was illuminating stuff they already knew when Peter and the other apostles went. And they preached typically, particularly when they talked to Jews, all they basically said was, Jesus is what God was always going to do. Look at what the prophecies say. Look at what Jesus did. This is who you've been waiting on. So if revival is to come in our day, um, there's not going to be anything new that we learn that we didn't already know. Instead, what it's going to be is a, a return to things we've already known, a, a return to things that maybe we've kind of let slip. And I think in our day... One of the issues that we have let slip is kind of the gospel. Uh, the, the lack of understanding about the gospel in our day among American Christians. And, and I'm not down on the American church when I say American Christians. Uh, I have an idea a little bit about what goes on in, say, China or the church in Iran. But I'm not really there. So I, I just know bits and pieces. I'm here. I'm immersed in American Christianity and I know far more about what goes on in American Christianity than I do anywhere else. And in American Christianity, we have kind of lost sight of what the gospel is. And there is a, there is a deep lack of understanding. And we see it, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, one is, several years ago, I heard a fairly famous professing Christian explain how in her, her spiritual journey, she realized that Jesus' death wasn't really the point. It wasn't the main focus. Instead... It was on the good deeds Jesus did and on the kindness He showed and on the fact He accepted and loved everyone. And in in her view, Jesus came to be an example of love and inclusion and not as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, that's really not the gospel. That's really not the focus. Another way we see the the loss of the gospel in in our culture is in recent years there's been a what you'd call a gospel of inclusion, has become very, very popular. And it's worded in different ways uh, anymore, but it's always a, it still comes back to a gospel of inclusion. And what it means, essentially, is everyone goes to heaven no matter what. Right? The gospel of inclusion is just that Jesus died for everybody, therefore everybody's saved, and everybody goes to heaven. The only real difference is that if you live for Him now, there are blessings you have that you miss out on in this life, but in the end, everybody makes it to heaven. Now, clearly, there's huge portions of Scripture you have to ignore or pull out to develop a gospel of inclusion, but the reality is those who promote the gospel of inclusion, they, they many of them do not even deny they say that. When you look at issues like hell is a good example. I, there's a guy, and I, I follow him on Twitter, and I read some of the things that he writes, and in one of the articles he wrote, he, he talked about he, he literally does not believe hell exists. I mean, 
He believes in the end everybody goes to heaven. And yes, the Bible talks about hell, but he really doesn't believe that was Jesus saying it. And, and on and on he goes. Uh, the gospel of inclusion really makes a mockery of much of what Jesus taught and, and of what he did for us on the cross. It, it is far from being the gospel. Even more popular in our day is what you call a gospel of acceptance or maybe the affirming gospel. And according to this gospel, you can be forgiven for your sins, but then you get to stay in your sin and, and live the way that you were living so long as, as you are happy. Or if this is how you were born. Or if you're living out your truth. Or, or whatever catchphrase is being used right now to affirm this. But the affirming gospel is really popular. Because with it pretty much anything goes. You, you live and you do whatever you want to do. Jesus loves you just the way you are. There's no change. There's no take up your cross. There's no deny yourself. Uh, there's no be a doer of the word. But a hearer only. None of that is there. The only real sin in the affirming gospel is to say that something is a sin. If you were to say, no, that's not right, that is a sin, you need to repent of that, then that would be a big problem for the affirming gospel ears. And all of these statements reveal people who do not know the gospel. Uh, it's even becoming popular to say we can't actually define the gospel. I listened to a preacher a few years ago who spoke at a conference, and one of the other conference speakers, who was a well-known pastor with a large church, said that he could not define the gospel for his listeners. He went on to say the gospel was something everyone had to define for themselves in their own context. The reality, though, is the gospel isn't something we get to define however we want. The gospel, and we'll see this tonight, is clearly defined by God. It is a, a set-in-stone Message that we don't get to alter, add to, or take away from. And, and what's bothersome about these sort of statements is those aren't statements that are made by people who say they don't believe in Jesus. Those aren't statements. None of the things that I just talked about, none of those are what the secular world is saying. All of those statements come from people in churches. Right? They come from pastors and theologians and writers of books and, and hosts of podcasts and radio shows. And social media influencers and, and all of these people who are professing believers are making these sort of statements about the gospel. Also, part of what bothers me is other believers who would hear that and say, no, that's not right. There's just no way that's what the Bible says. They won't stand up against it. They won't say, no, that's not true. No, the gospel doesn't free you to live However you want in your sin. Jesus came to change us. No, they, they won't say. No everybody doesn't go to heaven. Hell is a real place. The reason we don't. Is often because we fear. Being called judgmental. And intolerant. Of course in our culture. Those are the two worst things. You could possibly be. If you are judgmental. And you are intolerant. You are the worst form of life on earth. Right? Judgmental, intolerant Christians are responsible for everything that's bad and wrong in the world today. And because that sort of mindset is getting worse, many times as Christians we shrink back and we don't stand up and say, no, no, that's not right. And we can't do that. Another problem, another reason people don't stand up against these sort of false ideas of the gospel is out of the only thing I can think on the way I can say this it's out of out of ignorance 
The reality is many people who profess faith in Jesus, they do not know the scripture well enough to know if those things are the Bible. They do not know the basics of our faith. They don't know if everyone goes to heaven. They've heard Jesus died for everybody, so surely that means everybody goes to heaven, right? They've heard that God is a God of love and that God loves us and that God is love. So surely that means that there's no wrath, there's no judgment. And so they, does, does, does being saved, do you, are you perfect? Is that why, so I don't have to, I, I don't sin? Therefore, if I, and if I do sin, does that mean I'm lost? And, and if I sin and I'm still saved, does that mean I, should, I can live in sin and that's okay? I mean... They don't know how to answer these sort of questions that are being raised by these false ideas of the gospel. Because gospel issues are not of secondary importance. These are primary things. You know, we can disagree. We looked at Revelation a few years ago. And I'm reasonably sure there are some people in here didn't agree with my take on some of the issues that we talked about. One of my good friends, Hannah's pastor, Daniel Sweet, we talk about the end times a lot. And I tell him all the time, you're wrong. You're wrong about everything you believe. Right? He tells me all the time, no, you're wrong about everything you believe. Right? And, and about the end times, we agree in one thing. Jesus is coming back. Everything else we're all pretty well iffy on. And on stuff like that, we can be iffy on. Stuff like that is not heaven and hell isn't decided by what we view about the millennial reign or about the bowls of judgment. But Jesus, the gospel message, these are big issues. These are top tier, number one issues. The gospel is the greatest message the world has ever known. The gospel meets the greatest need people of the world have. Despite this, the gospel is often lost or redefined or replaced in American Christianity. And as this happens, as we lose the gospel, replace the gospel, or redefine the gospel. Christianity loses its distinctiveness. And as it does this, it becomes either just another religion explaining what we need to do to appease God so He doesn't smite us, or it becomes a form of moralistic, therapeutic deism just saying, be good and God will like you. And neither of those is right. Christianity isn't a list of do's and don'ts we do to appease God. Christianity primarily isn't about making us better people. It is about making us more like Christ. When the church loses, replaces, redefines the gospel, cuts itself off from the power of God, necessary to see souls saved and lives changed for the glory of God. At this point, the church becomes just another organization Man-made wisdom and philosophy empty of power and the glory of God. That's why if there is to be revival, we have to be sure we're right on the gospel. This is why if we are to be a church that is doing what God would have us to do in our community and beyond, we have to be right on the gospel. The gospel must always be the primary message of the church. And that's why we have to know the gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next few, I don't know how many weeks it is. It's anywhere from 6 to 10, uh, depending on how, how long each one takes. Um, and we're just going to talk about the gospel, the various aspects of the gospel, and talk about them in depth. There's 
two goals with this. One is that we would know the gospel. And that when we hear something that is not the gospel, we would say that's not right. And not that's not right because the preacher said that's not right. But that's not right because I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says the gospel is, and that's not right. The second goal is that since we would know the gospel, it would make it easier for us to share the gospel. Right? In generations previously, we shared the gospel primarily by memorizing a, a presentation. And there's nothing wrong with those presentations. Largely, they were good and they were helpful. But I don't think the gospel advances so much that way anymore. Rather, nowadays, the gospel advances through conversation. You and I talking about, here's what I believe. Well, here's what the Bible says. Well, what about this? Well, here's this. Right? And a presentation can't be done in a conversational way. Presentation is, I'm going to ask you this, and you're going to give me an answer, and then I'm going to show you this, and then you're going to give me an answer. And if we go off script at all, it throws everything in disarray. But the better we know the gospel, the more we can have gospel conversations, just conversations with people and weave the gospel in, answer their questions and share the gospel in a way that will help it to advance in our culture and in our time. So we're going to study mostly from 1 Corinthians 15. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 11 is what we're going to be studying. That should be page 879 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which you also have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scripture, that he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that he was seen of five hundred brethren, at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, though some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and this grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, the grace of God which was given to me, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The title of the message tonight is The Gospel Overview. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, Lord, to take your word to heart. Help us to know the gospel inside and out. That, Lord, we can explain it, that we can answer questions, that we can weave it into conversations, that we will know false gospels and false doctrines. When we hear them, we would reject them. That, Lord, we would know it so well, be so enamored with the gospel, that when we hear the false gospels, not only would we reject them, but we would have the courage to say, no, that's not right. That is not the gospel. That is not Jesus. That is not true. Fill me tonight with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me, I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Take this word, use it in our lives and transform us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn be seated. Now, the church at Corinth was a deeply troubled church. It was located in a city that was considered to be one of the most important cities in the Roman world. It was a commercial bridge between the east and the west. 
It attracted immigrants, merchants, freed slaves, retired centurions, and visitors from around the world. Now what this meant was the people of Corinth came from a variety of cultures, religions, and lifestyles. That sounds kind of familiar. Not only did the people of Corinth come from a variety of cultures, religions, and lifestyles, but for the most part, they kept their culture, their religion, and their lifestyle when they came to Corinth. That made Corinth a massive melting pot, a melting pot of multiculturalisms. Now, part of what happened as all of these cultures mixed together was a, a very permissive attitude towards morality. Not that Corinth wasn't permissive anyway, but this just added to it. And really, it's a not strong enough to say there was a permissive attitude toward morality. Um, the reality is there was just a rampant immorality in Corinth that was accepted and embraced and even encouraged in some ways. Really, you, you could say that Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the time. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. In fact, there was a saying to live as a Corinthian. And what it meant was basically to live a drunken, debauchery-filled life. Now, the debauchery of Corinth was fueled by the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the goddess of love uh, in the temple employed around a thousand priestesses who were temple prostitutes. And these priestesses would come down on the streets at night and they would be prostitutes. And so during the day you could go to the temple and sleep with a temple prostitute. At night they would come to you and you could sleep with a temple prostitute. And the temple of Aphrodite was just one of the many pagan temples in the city. To say that Corinth was bound in darkness is a, a massive understatement. But sometime around AD 50, the Apostle Paul went to this city to fight against the spiritual darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was all he took. While he was there, he said in 1 Corinthians, in an early part, he preached Christ and Him crucified. He preached the gospel. He preached it to Jews. He preached it to Gentiles. Many who heard Paul in that time were saved. And when Paul left Corinth, there was an established gospel church in the town. But after Paul left, false teachers came into town um, and they began to start trouble. Now, the false teachers came and they began to sow sort of a, a false doctrine in the church. There were spiritually immature believers and they began to sow cause trouble in the church and disrupt the unity. Uh, there were trouble over spiritual gifts and some began to want to use their gifts to show off how spiritual they were and the Lord over others who weren't as spiritual as them that didn't have these gifts that made them stand up in front of others. There was immorality of Corinth began to, to seep back into the church. The people began to go to their old way of life. Uh, there was a Greek philosophy that began to work its way in. Uh, and, and primarily the Greek philosophy that worked its way in was an idea that there was no resurrection of the dead. This was a foolish concept to Greek philosophers who they viewed the body as a prison and when you died your spirit and your soul were freed. And so to say that there would be a resurrection of the dead to them was just pure nonsense. 1 Corinthians 15, it is Paul's defense of the resurrection of the dead. But he starts that defense of the resurrection by reminding them of the gospel. Right In these first few verses, Paul clearly explains the gospel itself and several important facts about the gospel. Now, all of this is to say, Paul, as he's counteracting, trying to fight back against all that's wrong in the church, he is starting with the gospel. That's how he's, he wants them to get back to that most basic need. And so the main thought is the gospel is and must always remain 
the primary message of the church. Now that is a very simple idea and it's a very simple truth. But it is something that is very needed because as I mentioned so much in the American church right now, have lost, replaced, redefined the gospel into something other than the gospel. That's something we cannot do. Now, in this passage there are four facts about the gospel we're going to look at. Uh, We're not going to these, it's going to be two messages. I initially had one message, but... The first two points were really long. The second two points will be just as long. So it's going to be two messages. And in them, we're not really going to dive deep into the text itself. We're going to kind of skim it and look at some application from it. And then as we go into the different messages, uh, the, other, the rest of the weeks, we're going to dive deep into what Paul says here. So two of the four facts about the gospel we have to know. First is the gospel is necessary. Verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach to you, which you have also received, wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. He gives three facts about uh, to the Corinthians about their relation to the gospel. First, they had received the gospel. Right? He went, he preached, they had received it. They were currently still standing in the gospel, and they were saved through the gospel. Uh, they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they were saved through the gospel. But then he says in verse 3, which is kind of what he's building to, I delivered to you first of all. Now, in the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but from what I understand, the phrase first of all can be translated in a variety of ways, and pr- probably what it means is what I delivered unto you was of first importance. But he's not saying this is just, I preached it to you first and then went on to something else. What he's saying is, what I preached unto you, the gospel, that was the most important thing. That, that was the primary of everything. right? Because he's trying to call them back to the gospel. As I mentioned, there are some doctrines in the Christian faith we can agree to disagree on. There's a difference between free will Baptist and Southern Baptist on a few issues. But those aren't the same level as the doctrine of the gospel. There's a difference between us and the Nazarene on a few issues. But those aren't the same level between those things and the issues of the gospel. The gospel is of primary importance. The issues between a free will Baptist and a Southern Baptist are real. But they don't make the difference between heaven and hell. We can, or as I tell my Southern Baptist friends, we, we agree on most things. But there's a few areas where they're wrong. right? And they can be wrong on those areas and they're still going to heaven. We could be wrong on those things. We're not, but we could be, and we would still be going to heaven. But when it comes to the issue of the gospel, we get this wrong, we miss everything. We can't be wrong about the gospel and, and expect heaven to be our home. Now, we can't on a personal level, but we can't as, as disciples of Jesus either. right? Because not only can I not get it wrong for myself, but if I'm going to try to help others come to know Jesus Christ... I can't let them get it wrong either. I've got to be sure I know it well enough that I can explain it. And there's two reasons it's really critical for us to understand and embrace the idea that the gospel is necessary for salvation and we can't get it wrong. First is good people don't go to heaven. You know, if you were just to go ask a culture at large if good people go to heaven, culture at large would say yes. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell if there's a hell. If we were to ask fully devoted followers of Jesus if this is the case, 
hopefully they would say no. Because no is the correct answer. But Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a familiar passage, but it shuts down the idea that good people go to heaven for being good. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The idea that it's not of works means there are no good deeds anyone can do to earn salvation. Now, why did God set it up that way? Why did God do it so that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of works? So no one can boast. Right? See, if salvation was done by good deeds, then when I got to heaven, I could say, I deserve this. I've earned this. This is my right to be here. But when we get to heaven, no one is going to get to heaven and boast before God about what they did to get there. The people who get to heaven are going to get to heaven, stand before the Lord and glory in Him. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. right? That we will glory in the Lord because it is of the Lord who has made us wisdom and righteous salvation and sanctification. Right? So... If a person could earn heaven by their good deeds, they would be able to boast before the Lord. They would be able to steal His glory, in essence. And that's not what's going to happen. Anyone who gets to heaven is going to stand before God and say, You did this, not me. I'm here because of what you have done, not because of what I have done. Now, it is really serious that we understand this because, look at what Paul also says in Galatians. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Jesus died on the cross because we could not earn heaven on our own. I mean, He he did what we couldn't do. He made it possible for us to go to heaven. When someone says they have been good enough to go to heaven, they are saying Jesus' death was unnecessary. It was in vain. And really, vain carries with the idea of worthless. It was a worthless waste of time. And so anyone who says, I have earned it, and, and I, we probably all talk to people like that. I talked to someone who and, and explained some good deeds that they had done and said many people had told them they had earned heaven. And if they earned heaven, then Jesus' death was in vain. If we could be good enough on our own to make it to heaven then Jesus coming and dying was a worthless waste of time. So anyone who wants to get to heaven, they've got to understand that. If we want to reach people with the gospel, we have to understand that. right? If, if we say someone is a good person, so they'll probably go to heaven, we're saying Jesus' death for them was unnecessary. It was in vain. It was a worthless waste of time. Good people do not go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Similarly, religious people don't go to heaven. Religious people don't go to heaven. It's a common saying in our day, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe something. And the idea is so long as you believe in a God, any God, and, and however you define this God, you you follow the basic precepts of your God and your religion, then in that case, you are good to go. But if you're sincere and you're devoted and you really believe it, you'll be okay. 
Yet this is clearly not correct. Look at what Paul says. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So speaking of the Jews, Paul expresses his deep desire for them to be saved. But notice what he says about them. His desire is for them to be saved. So what does that mean? It means they're not saved. But despite the fact they're not saved, notice what they are. They are zealous for God. They have a great zeal for God. Now what this means is they are passionate about God and about their religion. So they are very devoted to Judaism. They are making the sacrifices. They're not eating pork. They're wearing the right clothes. They're doing all of the right things. right? And they're, they're, again, they're very passionate about this, but there's a problem. It's a zeal that is not according to knowledge. And Paul answers what that means. They're ignorant about God's way of making people righteous, which is through faith in Jesus. And that ignorance leads them to set out to try to establish their own way of being righteous. However, despite the fact they are passionate, despite the fact they are zealous about God, their attempts to make themselves righteous ultimately fail because righteousness comes only through faith in Christ. So religious people, no matter how much they believe it, how morally good it makes them, how much it has changed their life, it does not save if that religion is not faith in Jesus Christ alone. Just because someone is religious does not mean they're saved. It does not matter if they say they love God. It does not matter if they say they believe in Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in just a bit. But any religion promoting a righteousness through anything other than faith in Christ is a false religion. And it does not bring salvation. The gospel is absolutely necessary. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that belief brings righteousness. It reveals righteousness and it comes through faith. The gospel alone the power of God unto salvation for all who believe and for only those who believe. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and is received by a person through faith in Christ and through faith in Christ only. The gospel must be and remain the primary message of the church because believing the gospel is necessary for salvation. Secondly, in the last one for tonight, the gospel is established. Verse 3, Paul says, He delivered unto them, which he also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. We'll talk more about the idea of according to Scripture at a later time. But what he's saying is, here's what the gospel is. Here's what I, I preach the gospel. You receive the gospel. You stand the gospel. You're saved by the gospel. I delivered it to you. It's of first importance. Here was the gospel. Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture. Jesus rose again. Right? So there's the gospel. It is the, Jesus is the gospel. Right? The gospel isn't just something that's generally true. 
The gospel isn't any sort of message. It is primarily, it is that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose again. Now, notice the way Paul expresses it. He gives no indication that the gospel can be redefined. He gives no indication that the gospel is what they want it to be. He gives no indication that the gospel is something they must figure out for themselves. There's no indication that, it's, that it is redefined by their culture. No indications they can make any changes to it at all. The gospel is this message, and that is what it is. It is clearly established. It is defined by Jesus. Now, that is all very clear to us. But what we have to understand is there are people who want to complicate this. Scripture reveals to us that there are some who bring another gospel. Right? Look at what Paul says to the Galatians. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of God unto what? Another gospel, which is not another. But there are some that trouble you who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. That the Judaizers came to the Galatian churches and began to alter the gospel. Paul preached the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Judaizers preached the gospel that salvation was by Jesus plus keeping the law. And Paul said they're preaching another gospel, but it's really not another gospel. Instead, it is a perversion of the true gospel. It is a corruption of the gospel. And he goes so far as to say it doesn't matter who preaches another gospel to you. If it is me. If it is another person, if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach another gospel to you, let them be accounted as a curse. That means they're cursed by God. So anyone who brings another gospel is not just another way to believe. They are not saved but believe different than we do. They are cursed by God. That is judgment and wrath and hell. This isn't the only place we see the idea of another, meaning something false. Paul tells the Corinthians, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he cometh preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you may bear well with him. Now, Paul was afraid... The Corinthians had been deceived by Satan and led away from Christ. But, but notice how Satan, he was afraid Satan had done this. He didn't come preaching they should worship Satan. He didn't come preaching they should worship Zeus or any of the Roman or false gods by name. No, he came preaching another Jesus. He came bearing another spirit. He came proclaiming another gospel. And so what this means is just because someone says... They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does not mean they are saying what we mean by that. There are many false gospels in our day. And they, they're not false gospels that use another word. They will say this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit will bear witness with you that this is true. They will use all the same words we do. Jesus, gospel, spirit, salvation. But they twist what it is. Or in Paul's words, they pervert it. Right, so we have to be sure if the gospel is about Jesus, then they're 
We have to be sure we get Jesus right. There are four, four primary facts about Jesus that must be right. First, that Jesus is God. Right? Jesus is not just another guy. He's not just a religious leader. He, he's not just a prophet or anything along those lines. Jesus is God. Now the Bible's full of testimonies. We don't have time to, to go into these tonight. We're running out of time as it is. The one, John 10.30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And the religious leaders took up stones to stone Him. And He asked why they were going to stone Him. And in verse 33 of John 10, they said, For blasphemy, for you make yourself God. Jesus claimed very clearly He was God. Jesus was not only God, He is God in the flesh. Just as we must know Jesus is God, we must also know Jesus came to earth and became a man. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was God in the flesh. And, and that's important, right? Because we can't downplay His deity. Well, Jesus was a really good God. Really smart, really spirit-filled, really, really in tune with who He was in, in, in the Father. When we downplay His deity, we make Him less than He is, and that's not Jesus. But at the same time, we cannot downplay His humanity. Right? That He, he looked human, but He wasn't human. He was an angel, or He was uh, a something else. No, He was 100% man, 100% God. When we downplay His humanity, we make Him less than He is, and that is not Jesus. This is so significant, and I think I've got the wrong reference in my Bible. Let me look. So I've got down in my notes 1 John 4, 2, but I'm almost positive that's not right. Oh, it is. Hey. John, 1 John 4, 2, John writes, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye heard that ye should come, and even now is already in the world. So anyone who minimizes the humanity of Jesus, that is not the spirit of God leading them, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Right? That is leading them to teach that false doctrine. To deny the humanity of Jesus is to deny Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus died for our sins. We see this here in 1 Corinthians 15. Died for our sins according to Scripture. His death on the cross, it wasn't an example it wasn't a, a martyr for the cause. It wasn't because he, he loved us and so he died as an example of self-sacrifice. It was none of those things. He died as a substitutionary sacrifice. Through his death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin and paid the penalty our sin incurred. His sacrificial death is sufficient for the sins of everyone in the world. Can anything that minimizes Jesus died as a penalty, as a substitute for our sins? That's not Jesus. That is a, a false gospel. Another Jesus, another gospel. And then Jesus rose from the dead. Again, we see that First Corinthians here in verse 4. He rose from the dead according to Scripture. Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead. This is the most critical point to understand. We'll talk about it in more detail Next week. The reason this is so important is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, 
then all the testimonies about Jesus are untrue. Everything about our faith is built upon the fact Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. His death overcame sin. His, uh, his death overcame sin. His resurrection overcame death. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then as Paul says in later chapter, later in this chapter, then we are without hope. Best we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus did not rise, our faith is in vain. The Bible is a lie. Jesus is not rise from the dead. He is not God. He is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior of the world. Any doctrine, anything that minimizes the literal, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus is another gospel. Any Jesus that did not rise from the dead in that way is another Jesus. Now, these four facts about Jesus and the issues of Jesus are what separates us from other groups. Right? In, within Christian world, there are other Christian-like groups. Now, most Christian scholars refer to them as Christian cults. They're called Christian cults because they try to promote themselves as Christians, but they deviate in their doctrine enough that they are not Christian. They are false gospels. They are false Jesuses. Right? Three of the more popular ones in America are Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Scientists. Those are the three biggest ones you find. Now, all of these groups say Jesus. And all of these groups talk about the gospel. But the Jesus they talk about is not the, God, the Jesus of Scripture. Right? Just some quick examples. The, the Jesus of Mormonism is the brother of Satan. Right? He is a, a created being and not God. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witness is the first creation of Jehovah rather than the eternal God Himself. Rather than the Christian science Jesus being God, He exemplifies the divine sonship available to all men and women as God's children. These groups are all what Paul meant when he talked about another Jesus. They all preach another gospel, which, as Paul said, is not another, but a perversion. There are not other ways we can believe and still be saved. Those who believe and teach such things are, according to Scripture, accursed because they preach another Jesus. If someone gets Jesus wrong, it does not matter what they get right. If they are good moral people, they are kind, they are helpful. If they have the same moral stance as we do about abortion or homosexuality or the transgenderism, none of that matters if they are wrong about Jesus. They are not saved by being anti-abortion. We're not saved by being right on homosexuality. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if we get Jesus wrong, nothing else matters. This is the record. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Everything, everything, everything rises and falls on Jesus. The gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. And there is no gospel Without Jesus. The gospel message is already established and defined. 
Our job is not to redefine it or to tweak it. It is to know it and proclaim it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us as we study your word to know it better, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in our understanding of the gospel. Let it always bear fruit in our lives and let it bear fruit in our community. Help us as we study this series on the gospel to be sure that we know the gospel backward and forward, in and out, that we recognize a false gospel when we hear it, that we're courageous to stand for the true gospel, that we know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And Lord, that we would have, again, your spirit within us that would lead us to say, no, that's not right, when something is not right. Guide, O oh God, our church. Use us to reach out into this community. Help us to be lights that shine brightly. Let us be a beacon of hope through the gospel that would shine out into the just the sea of despair of this community, God. Save souls, change lives. Do what only you could do, we ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen.